Good morning to each of you. Please take God's word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We have a little unfinished business in the first few verses of chapter 10, and we'll get there in, in just a moment. Uh, it's quite possible you've heard the following story. I hadn't heard it till recently, and I'd like to share it with you at the outset. Um, it's told of a manager of a minor league baseball team who was so disgusted with his center fielder's performance that he ordered him to sit in the dugout while he assumed the position himself. The first ball that came into center field took a bad hop and hit the manager in the mouth. The next one was a high fly ball which he lost in the glare of the sun until it bounced off his head. The third was a hard line drive that he charged with outstretched arms. Unfortunately, it flew between his hands and smacked his eye. Furious, he ran back to the dugout, grabbed the center fielder by the uniform and screamed, you've got center field so messed up that even I can't do a thing with it. <laughs> now, you're, you're, you're laughing now. That is a very light-hearted illustration of a widespread and deeply rooted sin. Uh, the sin of grumbling. The sin of grumbling. And the Apostle Paul raises it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. It's mid-thought, mid-thought, nor grumble. You see how it begins? So to get the intro to the thought, go back to the start of verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test. We must not put Christ to the test. Now jump to the start of verse 10. Nor grumble. We must not grumble. As some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. The sin of grumbling. The old Puritan Thomas Manton, he says that the sin of grumbling is the scum of discontent. He has a, he's a way with words. He can turn a phrase unlike anyone I know. Grumbling is the scum of discontent. Elsewhere, he writes, grumbling is the vent of impatience. The vent, the venting of impatience. And here the Apostle Paul addresses it for us. We must not grumble. We must not do it. As some of them did. Who? The Israelites. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Do you remember the context? If you were here from last Sunday, here last Sunday, I pray you do. The context is very simple. Paul has penned this letter to the church in Corinth. And he is addressing a number of issues, and one of the most serious issues is this. Uh, there is a segment within the church at Corinth that believes they possess knowledge. And this knowledge is the key to their spirituality. And in effect, what they are doing is they are pointing to things in their lives. They're, point, they're pointing to certain beliefs or certain practices, and they are saying, look, this accounts for my spirituality. This accounts for my standing before God. 
And I pray you all notice this because I keep reinforcing my spirituality by appealing to these things and practicing these things. And Paul is explaining to them time and time again, no, 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 no. Uh, the only reason we boast is Christ. We've got no reason to boast outside of Christ. And our entire identity flows from our union with Christ through faith. And he really, in many ways, brings his argument then, a quite a persuasive argument, to a head in the 10th chapter. And he is his most severe, yet loving, in the 10th chapter. And essentially, he does three things. Firstly, he says to the church at Corinth, I want you to recall a community. All right, back into your memory banks. I want you to recall this community. What's he talking about? The very first verse of the 10th chapter, our fathers. He's referencing the Israelites. And he wants them to remember some things about the Israelites. They came out of the land of Egypt. They were all under the cloud. They all passed through the Red Sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, the manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink, that water that flowed from the rock. And so in other words, Paul is reminding them, look, your forefathers, they were a privileged people. They were a blessed people, clearly set apart and marked out as the people of God in a covenant community. But here's the problem. They were standing on the wrong thing. They thought these things were their security. They boasted in these things. But the reality is this, verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so he's pleading with the church at Corinth, I want you to recall a community. Secondly, I want you to make a comparison. It's not difficult. Nothing complicated here. They're an example to us. And you are not to desire evil as they desired evil. That was the problem. True enough. All those things happened to them. True enough. They could claim all of those things. True enough. All of those things set them apart as a privileged community. But they were standing on those things. And in actual fact, they weren't believers. And they desired evil. And that was clearly apparent from the moment they came out of the land. Because there they are at Sinai and they're prostrating themselves before a golden calf. Then they're committing sexual whoredom with the Moabites. And they're testing God all along the way. And to make matters even worse, they're grumbling. And they're murmuring. And they're complaining. They don't believe in God. Learn from their example. They were standing on the wrong thing. And never really believed in the Almighty. And then Paul says the following, basically based on the 12th verse. I want you to draw a conclusion. Just please arrive at this conclusion. Verse 12. I think the most important verse in the chapter. One of the most important verses in the entire epistle. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands. What are you standing on? The Israelites were standing on the wrong thing. They were standing on their experiences, their privilege, all these things that thought they thought that made them special. And the Corinthians, many of the Corinthians are now doing the same thing. And they're looking to this, they're appealing to that, they're practicing this, I have this special knowledge, oh, look at me. Oh, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Are you standing on the right foundation? The spiritual rock who is Christ. Is he your all in all? Do you realize that you have no reason to boast? 
outside of Christ. There's nothing that sets us apart. There's nothing that makes us particularly special. There's nothing that makes us super spiritual. There's nothing that we can point to that accounts for our standing in God's sight. All we have is Christ. We claim Christ. We believe in Christ. We hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's the context for the verse. And so in the middle of it, learn from their example. Don't desire evil as they desired evil. And he gives those four examples. Look, idolatry, immorality, testing God, and grumbling. Immorality. We saw something of this back in chapters 5 and 6. Idolatry, we're going to get into it in verse 14 through the rest of the chapter. But this idea of testing God and coupled with testing God, grumbling, has really arrested my attention over the past couple of weeks. And we are to learn from the example of the Israelites. And I want to submit to you that there are three great lessons to learn from them. Oh, from Egypt to Sinai, they grumbled against Moses. From Sinai to Canaan, they complained in the hearing of the Lord. Upon arriving at the promised land, all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. And at the outset of their wilderness wandering, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. This was written down for our instruction. We can look to the Israelites, and from them we learn three answers to three questions. Question number one, what causes grumbling? Pride certainly factors in. Greed undoubtedly has a role to play. Impatience is a doozy when it rears its ugly head. Presumption, right? This is a mixed salad, folks, that are all sorts of ingredients, all sorts of things that contribute to grumbling, but by far eclipsing them all. What we learn from the Israelites is this. The chief cause of grumbling is disbelief. It is a lack of faith. Psalm 78, verse 22. They, that is the Israelites, the murmuring Israelites in the wilderness, they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Still in Psalm 78, verse 32, despite his wonders, they did not believe. Psalm 106, verse 24, they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. God promises to give the land to the Israelites, track it, remember it all. He redeems them from the land of Egypt. They witness those 10 horrific plagues. They see the waters part before them and cross on dry land. They witness the decimation of Pharaoh's armies who are in hot pursuit. 
They see, visibly see this cloud leading them by night, a pillar of fire. As they make their way to Sinai, they go out of their tent in the morning. There's all this manna all over the ground, quails in the evening, water coming out of this rock, water coming out of this rock. And there they are at the foot of Sinai and they hear the trumpet blast and they see the smoke and they hear the thunder and they see the lightning, this visible manifestation of the glory of God. And he leads them all the way to the land. But despite all these wonders, they do not believe. They are not believers. Oh, when thirsty, they grumble. When hungry, they grumble. When tired, they grumble. The moment they see an enemy, they grumble. Why? Here it is. Get this statement, please. They refuse to believe that the wilderness is the way to Canaan. That's it in a nutshell, right there. Do you get that phrase? They refuse to believe that the wilderness is the way to Canaan. Christian, do you believe it? The wilderness is the way to Canaan. Suffering is the way to glory. Humiliation is the way to exaltation. The cross is the way to the crown. If we do not believe that, we will be the biggest whiners on the face of the earth. Because we don't believe. We don't believe the promise. Our eyes aren't fixed on what's coming. And we refuse to accept that the wilderness is the way to Canaan. And you heap on that pride and greed and impatience and presumption. And in the case of the Israelites, you have this people that grumbled upon every misadventure at every negative circumstance to such a degree that God himself declares, Numbers 14, I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Your dead body shall fall in the wilderness. That's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. You do not believe. The second answer the Israelites provide by way of example is this, to the following question. Why is grumbling so serious? Idolatry. Ooh, we get that, right? You fashion some sort of a image and prostrate yourself before it. Sexual immorality, we have no problem identifying that, calling it out, rebuking it, disciplining it, fine. Grumbling, probably not at the top of our list of the most heinous sins going. But in God's estimation, quite serious. In God's estimation, serious enough that he declares to them, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness. What makes it so serious? The first and the most significant is this. It injures God. I told you Thomas Manton knows how to turn a phrase. Here's another great one. He says, murmuring is a sin that pulls God out of the throne. That's why it's so serious. It is a sin that pulls God out of his throne. It is a denial of his sovereignty, his power, his wisdom, and his goodness. That's what makes it so serious. A far second, 
You know, the first is the most significant, but a second reason, not quite as significant as this. It's serious because it injures others. Oh, the consequences, the ripple effects of grumbling and murmuring. Moreover, it's contagious. It agitates those who are discontent. It's like a spark thrown on dry grass, grumbling. Just ignites everything it comes into contact with. We read in the book of Proverbs, for a lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, grumbler, quarreling, ceases. I thank God when I look back on these past 10 years at Grace Community Church and the unity we have enjoyed and the peace we have enjoyed, I'm convinced that one of the chief reasons is simply this. There haven't been very many whisperers. That's it. It's not, it's not rocket science, folks. I mean, this is just basic Bob, simple stuff. There just haven't been many whisperers, many grumblers, igniting, igniting. Oh, where there is a lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. The third reason it's so serious is this. It injures us. It's like spitting in the wind, right? You ever tried that when you were a youngster? Not recently, right? <laughs> Spit in the wind. It comes right back at you. That's the effect, the impact of grumbling. Most of our misery stem from discontentment. It's a fascinating text, Philippians 2. Read it this afternoon, please. Get into Philippians chapter 2. You pick it up, uh, you know, pretty early on in the chapter. And there the Apostle Paul, he exhorts us to imitate the Lord Jesus. Imitate him how? And then we have that wonderful Christological passage in which he celebrates the glory of Christ and his incarnation and his humiliation. He who was equal with God, he did not consider a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, right? And he came, he walked among men, he took the form of a servant, and he offered himself up. Well, he was humble, but God has now glorified him, right? And he's given him a name that is above every name, not only in this age, but in the one to come. I mean, here Paul takes us to the mountaintop, and he comes down the mountaintop, and he exhorts us, now you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And what's the very first command he gives there in Philippians chapter 2? It's fascinating. Do all things without grumbling. Seriously, Paul, you take me all the way up there and you give me this vision, if you like, of Christ. And, and, and yes, in, 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 his, in his glory, his eternal glory and the throne he left and how he came to the lower parts of the earth and how he humbled himself and suffered such humiliation, but now exalted at the right hand of God as my mediator. And I get it now as I look to Christ. I work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, Paul, give me the goods. And what does he have to say? Stop grumbling. First thing he has to say, stop grumbling. Why? Because it's a sign of disbelief. It's one of the greatest impediments to spiritual growth. It reveals the condition of my heart. It reveals that I've lost sight of God's matchless grace. All those things we were singing about just moments ago. It reveals that I am suffering from tunnel vision. Tunnel vision. Can't see beyond me. My circumstances, my problems, my needs. It is one of the most difficult sins to confront. Grumbling. Why? Because it will hide behind a cloak of piety. It hides behind a cloak of piety. Spirituality. 
Oh, but it is a serious sin, injuring God, injuring others, and injuring us. But the Israelites answer for us a third question. What is the remedy for grumbling? What is the remedy? The answer, the solution. So let's play a little game. Let's imagine Tuesday, Wednesday, you wander in here and you pass by my office and you say to me, Stephen, I am a little bit of a whiner. I, uh, I struggle with grumbling. What do you have to say? First thing I say is, go talk to Brian. He's just down the hall. <laughs> and you say, no, no, I don't want to talk to Brian. Well, then I realize you've got a real problem. You are a grumbler. So I say, sit right down then. And, uh, and I say to you, look, it's all about looking. It's all about looking where you're looking. And I can speak to you from personal experience because it takes one to know one. I grumble. I struggle with this in, in, in stupendous ways. I struggle with this. I say, sit down. It's all about looking. And let me counsel you. Let me suggest to you that, um, there are five things we need to do when it comes to looking if we want a remedy for grumbling. First is this. We need to look at what we're doing. Just stop and look at what we're doing. That would have served the Israelites well. Their grumbling, let's face it, their grumbling was sheer madness, wasn't it? Given what they saw, given what they experienced, given what they witnessed. I mean, many of us here are probably thinking to ourselves, boy, if I could just see a miracle like that, if something like that could just happen today, I'd be the best Christian ever. I'd get it together. It'd be smooth sailing. What a, what a tremendous mo- motivation that would provide to serve the Lord. The Israelites had it all, and yet they grumble in the face of it all. Sheer madness. And this is the first thing we need to come to grips with. We need to look at what we are doing when we grumble. Here it is in black and white. When I grumble, I am declaring that I have lost touch with reality. I'm just not there anymore. I have lost touch with reality. Now just pause, just pause for a moment because it's quite possible some might might be confused here and I don't want confusion, I want clarity. There is such a thing as holy grumbling, right? There is such a thing as holy complaining. When we confront sin, when there are problems, when there are issues, we lament these things and it is possible to do that in a holy godly fashion. That's not what we're referring to. We're referring to the sin of grumbling. How do you know the difference? It's easy. Holy grumbling drives us to our knees before God's throne. That's how you know you're okay. If you're complaining about your current lot, if you're struggling with present circumstances, if it's really got you down and you're just lamenting before God, well, how do I know I haven't fallen into terrible sin here, presumptuous sin. How do I know this isn't disbelief? You know it because at home you're on your knees in prayer and you're crying out to God. No, the person who's sinning in terms of their grumbling is the person on Facebook and just venting for the entire world. 
It's the person who's on the phone. It's the person who's texting. It's the person who's talking. It's the person who actually isn't bringing the problem to God. They're bringing the problem to everyone else. That's the difference between a holy grumbling and an unholy grumbling. And so there you are. You need to learn from the Israelites. We need to look at what we are doing. When I grumble, I have lost touch with reality. I need to stop what I'm doing. All right? I need to stop sulking. I need to stop moping around the house. I need to stop feeling sorry for myself. Oh, I need to stop playing the victim. I need to stop making everything about me. I need to stop being so critical of others. I need to bite my tongue. To think before I speak. I need to stop obsessing about all that's wrong. I referred to it once. No harm referring to it again because I think it is a real problem. I need to get off Facebook. I just need to get off. it. I need to recognize how ridiculous I am being. I need to recognize this is sheer madness. This is madness when I grumble and complain. Secondly, I would say, uh, we need to look at what we're taking in. So not only do we need to look at what we are doing, we need to look at what we're taking in. Never forget the Israelites are not alone. When they came up out of the land of Egypt, they were not by themselves. We read in Exodus 12 that a mixed multitude also went up with them. Scripture refers to this mixed multitude as the rabble, the rabble, this mixed multitude. And they were a thorn in the flesh. And they were the ones who instigated more often than not the murmuring. Oh, we need to look at what we're taking in. We must not listen to the rabble. Jude describes them as follows. follows these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desire. They complain, they criticize, they murmur. Coupled with this, we must guard our hearts when it comes to listening to the rabble. I think I said this a few months ago, or maybe it's a few years ago now, I can't remember. Far too many of us walk around with spam filters on, right? The problem is this, the settings are all wrong. We let in all the junk, right? While keeping the positive out. The glass is always half empty. And it's just negative, 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 negative. A thick cloud of cynicism hangs over our society. Here's the problem, Christian. We are what we eat. That is true physically. And that is true spiritually. We need to look at what we are taking in. Thirdly, I'd say to you, if you could still stomach it, I'd say to you, we need to look back. All right? We've looked at what we're doing, and we see it's madness. We're looking at what we're taking in and realizing we're called to guard our hearts. We now need to look back, and we learn this from the Israelites. Here's a people that never looked back. Israel forgot so quickly. Hear this, please. There were inconveniences in the wilderness, but these were nothing in comparison to what they had suffered in Egypt. But they were clueless to it. Inconveniences, mere inconveniences in the wilderness. 
paled in comparison to what they had come out of in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. They were in bondage in Egypt. They were oppressed physically, spiritually, economically in Egypt. Let's face it. They had just seen the slaughter of what? A generation of baby boys. Oh, that we were back in Egypt. Oh, they forgot so quickly. Mere inconveniences in the wilderness compared to the suffering in Egypt. And to remind them of this, another act of great grace. What did the Lord do when he sent the manna? He told Moses, collect an omer. An omer, two quarts. I know an omer is two quarts. Don't ask me what a quart is, but an omer is two quarts. Collect it and keep it. Miracle A, that he provided it. B, they kept it for how long? Right through into the land. It's put in the Ark of the Covenant when it's eventually made. And so it is miraculously provided and then miraculously preserved. Here is a people that forgets, forgets who they, where they've come from, forgets who they are. Oh, a good memory, says one preacher, is a help to thankfulness. A good memory is a help to thankfulness. We need to remember what God accomplished at the cross. We need to remember God's gifts of his word and his spirit. We need to remember God's promises concerning all that awaits us and the inheritance that he has in store for us. We need to remember how God brought us to saving faith in Christ, recalling who we were, what we were, and what we now are in the Lord Jesus. We need to remember how God spared our life from that car wreck or some other danger. We need to remember how God brought us through cancer or some other illness. We need to remember all those friends and mentors whom God has used so wonderfully in our lives. We need to remember how God has provided for all of our needs. We need to remember how God has given us a local church where we can grow and flourish and serve him. We need to remember how God has answered our prayers. We need to remember how God has sustained our marriage. We need to remember how God has given us life and breath, food and drink, shelter and provision. We need a little omer of manna that we can take a look at every once in a while and then preach to ourselves, Stephen, stop your grumbling and stop muttering in this depressed, unhappy way and trust in God. We need to look back. Fourthly, we need to look ahead. So there we are in the office and you're writing this stuff down furiously. I say, don't worry about it. I can email it to you. All you need to do, send me an email during the week and I can just attach all of this if you like it. And the fourth point would be this. We need to look ahead. See, the Israelites are looking to Egypt. Would that we had died in Egypt. What a clueless people. Unbelievably stubborn. Would that we had died in Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. Where should they have been looking? To God's promise as given to Moses in Exodus 3, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. That's where they should have been looking. They were looking back in a negative way rather than looking ahead to all that awaited them. We will never be faithful in the present 
if we're still yearning for Egypt. It's just not possible, folks. We will never, ever be content, faithful, happy in the present if we are still yearning for Egypt. Hope is fixed on the return of Christ, the resurrection from the dead, the full and final deliverance from sin, and the renovation of the entire cosmos. And hope's, hope makes this future certainty a present reality. And as a result, we believe. And fifthly, I would say to you, we need to look to Christ. Did you get the five? We need to look at what we're doing. We need to look at what we're taking in. We need to look back. We need to look ahead. And above all else, we need to look to Christ. Contentment, peace, is not determined by our circumstances. It is determined by what we believe. That's why it eludes so many of us. Contentment is not contingent upon our circumstances. It rests upon what we believe. We must therefore find our ultimate joy in Christ. We rest in him as the dearest father, the wisest guide, the strongest shield, the greatest good, the closest friend, the richest grace the highest honor, the kindest comfort, the finest beauty, the deepest truth, and the sweetest love. I can do no better than the words of that song that we sang in the intro. Here it is, a wonderful conclusion. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes. It's all about looking. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done, we'll walk by faith and not by sight. Oh, our great God in heaven above, may it be so. May you enlarge our spiritual eyes today that we might see with freshness your love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bring your word home to bear not for the purpose of obsessing over our sin and our failure and our shortcomings, but with the purpose of driving us afresh to Calvary's cross and in the Lord Jesus finding forgiveness for our sin and the hope of eternal life. May our eyes indeed be fixed on him, the one who is the apple of your eye, the one who is your eternal delight. May he also be our delight this day and forevermore. In his name we pray, amen.